Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the White Witch Podcast with me, Carly. Hello, all you little pumpkins. Witch season is officially here. We have Samhain just around the corner. October is, of course, considered the start of shadow season. And we are also stepping into Scorpio season, which again holds a lot of darkness. Scorpio has two ruling planets, Mars, the planet of action, aggression, and desire, and Pluto, the planet of transformation, rebirth, and our subconscious forces. I'm so sorry for the brief gap with the podcast. What happened is um, the dog ate my homework. No, 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 seriously. I was chugging away with the podcast. I was so happy, like putting out a couple of episodes every week. Until a very dear friend of mine who I've known for years recently moved back to our hometown. This friend of mine taught me around eight years ago about working with spirit and energy in a circle that he ran. To be honest, I won't say I was his best student, but he taught me a lot about spirit and energy. I was always in awe of him and his work. So he recently came back from another country as he was asked to work on a very prestigious retreat at Ballingdon Hall, which is in Suffolk. And he was kind enough to give me the opportunity to run some workshops relating to shadow work, working with herbs and so on. So that's what I've been up to. I bloody loved it. It was at an Elizabethan mansion and one of the rooms there is Mary Queen of Scots room as she used to visit there. It even has the same bed that she slept in, but I've been reassured that they did indeed buy a new mattress. So I kid you not, I stayed in a room called the Teddy Bears Room, which has the original little lattice windows, traditional to houses of old, like the whole house does, obviously. And on the first night, there was this big, almost full moon shining in the window on me. There was an owl like doing his to it to wooing. And I swear, like past life me was like, Hmm, this feels familiar. (laughs) But this house was unreal. It is one of the best experiences of my life. I met some truly wonderful souls, had plenty of scones and tea and Victoria sponge cake made by the wonderful Ballingdon Hall team. And on top of that, I got to watch my fellow workshop host classes. 
I saw like the most spirit activity from table tipping. And I kid you not, the spirit mediums didn't even have their finger on the table when it was doing its thing. So can you imagine a table with just three single index fingers on top of it? And it's wildly spinning around the room and you're following it. We've even got it on video. It's bonkers. I must admit, I was a bit dumbfounded at some of the spirit things that happened there. It fully opened up my eyes. So I had to talk about communication with the dead after my time at Ballingdon Hall. And who better to talk about than the wartime witch, Helen Duncan, who is also known as Scotland's last witch. She was the last person in Britain to be tried as a witch and sentenced under the 1735 Witchcraft Act. So grab a cup of tea and join me as we go back in time to find out all about Helen Duncan, the wartime witch. November 25th, 1897, as Victoria Helen McFarlane at Back Row in Callender, Perthshire, Scotland. Helen was daughter to Isabella and Archibald McFarlane. Her father was a master slater, and Helen was the fourth eldest daughter and one of eight children. As a child, she was described as a bonnie lass, but claimed and demonstrated clairvoyant and spirit seeing abilities. Helen would predict doom and destruction for different people and she would have hysterical outbursts. Helen was adamant that ghosts were real and she saw them frequently. She was convinced of her gift. Both of Helen's parents had female relations with the gift so they were unconcerned with her psychic ability, believing she would grow out of it. Yet as she got older, her abilities increased and developed. She earned the nickname Hellish Nell from the locals and stuck out in her small highland village as a result of her stubborn and fiery personality, tomboy tendencies and claimed ghoulish visions. Whilst at school, Helen claimed to have assistance from spirits. On one occasion, she prayed for help with the questions a teacher wrote upon the blackboard and to her astonishment, the answers appeared upon her chalkboard yet not in her own handwriting, which the teacher also noted as it wasn't in her usual childish scrawl. Her teacher, as a result, accused her of cheating. Helen, of course, couldn't explain the answers nor how they had appeared. Another incident in the classroom for a history lesson involved a spirit that kept repeating the number 1066 to her. Her teacher then wrote on the blackboard, the Battle of Hastings, 1066, and then suffered a huge heart attack. As a result of her worrying behaviour, Helen's mother decided to take her along to the doctors. The doctor found nothing wrong neurologically with Helen, but before they left, teenage Helen warned the doctor not to go out in his car that night to her mother's embarrassment. Regardless of her warning, the doctor did take his car out and his car skidded off the road in a snowstorm. The prediction of the village doctor's demise was condemned by the local Presbyterian minister who accused her of consorting with the devil. 
She moved to Dundee at 16 years old, mainly due to the lack of work in her local area, but also because of the embarrassment she felt she had caused her family. She started out working at an ammunition factory, and she then went on to work at the Royal Infirmary, where she met friend Jean Duncan, and then went on to meet Henry Edward Duncan, Jean's brother. When they first met, Henry's first words to her were, so we meet at last. And it turned out both had experienced visions of one another over previous years. Henry was interested in Helen's abilities and instead of suppressing them, encouraged them. Henry was a wounded soldier of the First World War who was honourably discharged due to rheumatic fever that had impacted on his heart by badly damaging one of the valves within it. He worked as a cabinet maker. They married in 1916 and went on to have six children together. Two of their children died in infancy. Providing for such a large family of six and a sick husband was a struggle. At this time, Helen was working at a bleach factory. One day whilst at work, she had a premonition about her husband, rushed over to his workshop to find him having a heart attack. She managed to get him the help he needed and saved his life. But after this, she recognised he wasn't well enough to keep working and working in a bleach factory was hard and dangerous. Henry encouraged his wife, Helen, to begin using her clairvoyant skills to make money. Helen and her husband worked on honing her skills, which was said to be clairvoyance, clairaudience, psychometry and precognition. They worked on her skills until she was more confident and as she got better with her skills, the voices started. She had the spirit of a Dr Williams who came through and advised Henry that Helen had the potential to materialise spirits. Henry was excited, but Helen was nervous. She had, after all, suffered as a result of her abilities in the past and little good had come of them. However, she was keen to help others and as a result of World War I, many had lost their loved ones and sought out comfort. It's said that Dr Williams advised Henry he must make Helen a cabinet that was large enough for Helen to be able to fit in and that this would act as a form of portal for souls to come through. Henry did, of course, construct a cabinet for this reason. It had black curtains at the front and Helen would sit inside and the cabinet would harness her energy and act as the portal for spirits to appear and make themselves known to guests at the seance. First seances they held were made up of friends and neighbours and said to be unpredictable and scary. A prayer would have been said at the beginning and a Bible kept to hand. Henry apparently learned from the spirit Dr. Williams how to protect his wife and hone her talents. Whilst in a trance in the cabinet, Helen would begin to produce ectoplasm, which is etheric energy matter from her mouth and nostrils. Ectoplasm is a white, smoky, mucous substance that can be described as looking how your breath looks on a cold, frosty morning. Guests of the sounds described it as a magical mist or a living cobweb that glowed bright white and seemed to have a life of its own. Dr. Williams warned Henry that no light was to be shone on the ectoplasm as it would be of high danger to Helen, but instead a low, dim red light would be used so sitters of the seance could see what was happening. 
Helen would often claim to feel sick and tired after seances. She would become drained and have a voracious appetite, which was apparently what led to her being overweight. Dr. Williams' spirit advised that Helen's spirit guide could now form from the ectoplasm and be there to look after Helen. So his name was said to be Albert Stewart, and he was a six-foot-tall elderly man who was Scottish-born but had emigrated to Australia where he drowned in 1913. He was said to be a distinguished man who had an upright stature, he was educated, his voice had the hint of an Australian accent. He was always polite and had a good sense of humour and he apparently announced his arrival with a request for those present not to be alarmed at the sight of him. He went on to be known to Helen and Henry as Uncle Albert. Sorry, there's only one Uncle Albert to me and he's on Only Fools and Horses. Anyway, Uncle Albert became the master of ceremonies at Helen's seances and announced to sitters at the seance what spirit was coming out of the cabinet. Albert, her spirit guide, was often accompanied by another of Helen's spirit guides, a little girl called Peggy, who would dance, skip around the room, singing songs and also swing from curtain rails. Both spirit guides nonetheless had a different accent to Helen, who had a Scottish accent so thick some people struggled to understand it. Bloody love a Scottish accent, always have. So Helen went from a clairvoyant to a materialisation medium quickly and news spread about her abilities fast. The postman would often bring requests from all over the country for her to visit and carry out seances. Helen spent some of the small fees she charged from sitters at seances on the sick children of neighbours, on their medical care. At this time, it was expensive and she was known to be a kindly soul to those who were civil to her, but not one to take abuse without giving the abuser a piece of her mind. Come 1926, Helen was a full-blown medium at a time when spiritualism was all the rage. She made enough money so her husband was able to fully devote his time to accompanying his wife on her travels and serving as her aide. Moving to Edinburgh, her seances soon became the talk of the town. It was said that even the ghost of Sherlock Holmes creator Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a firm believer in spiritualism, was said to have materialised at one of her seances. By the late 1920s, Helen had become one of the most famous mediums in the country. Duncan claimed to have the ability to produce ectoplasm in the midst of trances where she would transform into her spirit guides, Albert or Peggy. Peggy would speak through Helen and over the course of time, Helen had put on a lot of weight. So the contrast between her age and size and the ability to emit the voice of a young girl is said to be why many people believed her. The supernatural goo Helen emitted would give form to the spirits of the dead and she could even swallow and regurgitate it. The Scottish Spiritualist Society in Edinburgh were impressed with her work and invited Helen to give regular seances to their members. They even presented her with a certificate that endorsed her talents. 
When Helen and Henry <laughs> discovered how much the society were charging to attend compared to how little they were paid, they refused to be exploited and stopped doing them through the society. I wish I could like play back to you some of the clips of the podcast that I record because for so many times I keep saying Helen and Mary. So yes, Helen and Henry. So this became their first rift and one of many that Helen would have with spiritualist organizations within her lifetime. Her seances caught the attention of skeptics and believers. And in 1928, a photographer called Harvey Metcalf photographed Helen's seances. He used flash photography in the seances, in the dimly lit rooms, and captured the alleged spirit of Peggy, Speggy, Peggy even, and the strange ectoplasm. The photos revealed peculiar dolls that comprised of paper mache faces and old sheets. Concerned by the images, the London Spiritualist Alliance held 50 sittings with Helen between October 1930 and June 1931. Two reports from her seances and their findings went in her favour. However, a third indicated fraud. Pieces of ectoplasm found from time to time from the seances differed in composition and under closer inspection, specimens contained paper or cloth mixed with something like egg white. Others showed surgical gauze soaked in a resinous fluid and another was simply made up of layers of loo paper stuck together. More common material they used for ectoplasm was butter, muslin or cheesecloth, which was likely swallowed and regurgitated. Distressing choking noises were said to often be heard at the seances coming from a cabinet in the room. In 1934, in a seance in Edinburgh, Peggy emerged, or Speggy, as we like to call her, Peggy emerged in the seance from Helen Duncan and a sister of the seance, a Miss Esson Moore, who I read was a friend of Harry Price, the infamous author and media personality who wrote on the supernatural, grabbed her. The lights were turned on and the spirit was revealed to be made of a cloth and undervest, which was used as evidence that led to Helen Duncan to be convicted at Edinburgh Sheriff Court for a fray and for being a fraudulent medium. Helen pleaded not guilty, but was fined £10. Helen claimed the garment had been taken from her travelling bag and was simply used to discredit her. She was offered the chance to bring charges against Miss Moore, but she refused. Even Miss Moore, who brought charges against Helen, claimed that during the seance she could hear the voice of Uncle Albert alongside the deep breathing of Helen Duncan. No one in the court case disputed several spirits had been seen or spoken before Miss Moore created the disturbance. This didn't harm Helen's career and Helen Duncan carried on working seances. Much suspicion still followed her, but her fans remained faithful to Helen. She had knowledge of their lives and loved ones that she couldn't possibly know. She continued to be in high demand for her work as a medium and her skills attracted Harry Price. Price was a physical researcher who was a member of the Magic Circle and several other physical research groups. He was acclaimed for his investigations into physical phenomena. Conflicting reports say he wasn't purposely out to disprove mediums. He did, in fact, have many that he believed to be genuine. Other reports I read claim he was a complete cynic and was determined to prove Helen a fraud. 
One account I read stated that Price wanted the chance to examine her under scientific conditions. He suspected she swallowed the cheesecloth prior to the seance and then regurgitated it, thereby producing fake ectoplasm. When they were due to bring her in to be investigated, they were about to bring out an x-ray machine. All of a sudden, Helen fell into a hysterical state. Her husband attempted to soothe her worries and she apparently screamed and lamped him right in the face. She also made a swing for the doctor who was present and then she's said to have made a runner, tripped and tore her black satin gown to shreds. At this point, she was almost entirely naked. She then fell down some steps onto her knees, clutching iron railings outside the building. The seance was due to be held at. Screaming and sobbing into the night, that really escalated quickly. Her husband tried to pacify her as a crowd formed around her. The police arrived and then she decided to calm down and then asked to be x-rayed. Sounds suspicious, right? So Harry Price thought, nope, this isn't cricket, believing she had passed the cheesecloth to her husband. So he asked Helen's husband to turn out his pockets to alleviate his suspicions, but he refused, and this meant they called time on the experiment. Helen finally agreed to a controlled experiment where the researchers would be allowed to take a sample of the ectoplasm. Harry Price quoted, The sight of half a dozen men, each with a pair of scissors, waiting for the word was amusing. It came and we all jumped. One of the doctors got hold of the stuff and secured a piece. The medium screamed and the rest of the teleplasm went down her throat. This time it wasn't cheesecloth. It proved to be paper, soaked in whites of egg and folded into a flattened tube. Could anything be more infantile than a group of grown-up men wasting time, money, and energy on the antics of a fat female crook? Wow, that's so rude. I read that Harry Price also believed Helen had two stomachs, which she used to create the ectoplasm illusion. And he says this is why he believes she wouldn't let him x-ray her. Another account I read about Harry was that on meeting Helen, he announced that he thought all mediums were guilty of fraud until proven genuine. Therefore, it was never going to end amicably between them. Helen claimed she would allow herself to be examined in her naked form by women before every seance before she donned her black gown so that they could confirm that no cloth was concealed about or inside her body. Qualified doctors stated that in regards to Price's regurgitation theory, there was no way she could have regurgitated the amount of material that would have been needed to produce the spirits that materialized from hell. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Um, one qualified doctor, Dr. Marguerite Link Hutchinson, who was highly qualified, examined Helen before a seance and supervised her as she dressed spent the entire time with Helen from her meal until the time of the seance, said that she wouldn't have been able to regurgitate the materials without vomiting at the same time. President Ernest W. Oten, a president for the International Spiritualist Federation, attended 18 of Helen's seances and said he laid down conditions at her seances which made fraud utterly impossible without detection and that the spirits were intelligences separate and distant from Mrs. Duncan and were decidedly different in form. Regardless of this conclusion, this had no effect on Helen's adoring public. In fact, her popularity and reputation grew and she was more in demand than ever due to the outbreak of World War II. During World War II, the Duncans lived in Portsmouth, headquarters of the Royal Navy's home fleet. One seance they held in Edinburgh on 24th of May in The Year Would Help, Carly. The Year Would Really Help. The year was 1941. So one seance they held in Edinburgh on 24th of May 1941 had a sitter present, Brigadier Firebrace, who had been with Ian Fleming in Moscow in 1939 and held connections with intelligence services. During the seance, Uncle Albert claimed a British battleship had just been sunk. At this same seance, Albert also claimed the Russians would enter the war on the side of the Allies, which seemed unlikely as they had signed a non-agreement pact with Nazi Germany in 1939. Uncle Albert stated the war would end with two big bangs. Brigadier Firebrace left the seance and listened to the news to hear word on what he had heard at the seance, but could find nothing regarding the sunken battleship. He rang the Admiralty and the official denied it. In the morning, the same official rang Brigadier Firebrace and confirmed the HMS Hood had been sunk by the Bismarck and asked Firebrace how he knew before sections of the Admiralty did. On a dreary night in November 1941 at a spiritualist church in Portsmouth, Helen was said to be dressed in black silk and watched eagerly by a small crowd of spectators when suddenly there was movement and a white ghostly figure rose up dressed in a sailor's cap that read HMS Barham. The figure moved towards a woman in the audience and hovered before her before speaking in a soft, low voice to say his ship had been sunk with a great loss of life. The member of the audience was said to be his mother. She said in shock that this couldn't be correct as she would have been notified and the spirit of the sailor confirmed she would be in three weeks' time before he faded away. His mother, after the seance, was so concerned she contacted the Admiralty, who sent officials round to question her. This wasn't an unusual event. The Second World War claimed many a sailor and British lives, and as a result, many distressed relatives turned to spiritualism to ease their pain. Up to 50,000 seance circles popped up across Britain at this time, but this seance would be distinctly different because nobody... But the government officials should have known about the ship sinking that the sailor had been on, the HMS Barham. This was heavily classified information. 
The Admiralty knew through German Enigma machine radio communications that Bletchley Park had intercepted that the Germans thought only minor damage had been caused to HMS Barham. Yet the truth was the ship had been blown up a few minutes earlier after being hit by a U-boat torpedo. The Royal Navy wanted the German Navy to think HMS Barham was still a threat in the Mediterranean Sea rather than sunk at the bottom of it. They went to great lengths to keep this information from the public and its sinking wasn't even announced until January 1942. 859 sailors were said to have died upon the HMS Barham. Helen's Seance, I can't say people's names today. Helen's Seance. I need to, this makes me laugh because my dad can't, like, can't pronounce the word Helen for some reason. And he says, Helen. So, yeah, we won't say that today. Helen. Helen's, (laughs) Helen's Seance, however, had started off rumors around HMS Portsmouth. One of the points raised was how the sailors would never wear the name of their ship on their cap band during wartime. So how could his spirit have been genuine? But sitters of seances, however, argued that they would see spirits of their loved ones dressed in a way that they would most readily recognize them. Word of Helen's revelation at the seance reached the police and intelligence services. They questioned if Helen was picking up on military secrets, if she was in contact with the enemy or receiving leaked information from inside the war office. However, to many it was believed she simply learned of it through the spirits on board who perished. They didn't do anything with her at this time until 1944 because this was when they were planning D-Day out of Southwick House in Portsmouth. So Helen became a serious threat to this effort. D-Day was crucial. The Germans had begun to create and develop flying pilotless aircraft, which were known as doodlebugs. Training for D-Day went badly. Many troops had died, so there was a fear their spirits might make themselves known at one of Helen's seances and spoke on where they had died and when the invasion might take place. A sitter might make an educated guess as to what had occurred. All preparations hinted at a beach landing and paranoia on security reached new heights. Chief Constable West of Hampshire Police decided it was better to be safe than sorry when it came to Helen. He didn't know if Helen's seances were merely lucky guesses or had validity, but he felt they couldn't risk it for the sake of other soldiers preparing to raid the French coast. He was determined to lock Helen out of harm's way. On 19th January 1944, Helen was invited to hold a seance at a master temple above a chemist in Copner Road, Portsmouth. The police raided and Helen was initially arrested under Section 4 of the Vagrancy Act 1824 which most charges relating to fortune-telling, astrology and spiritualism were prosecuted under at that time. Police found no evidence in the raid and the case was therefore based on logic that Helen must have conjured up spirits of the dead as no such thing existed. In order to prove herself innocent, Helen in essence had to prove the existence of life after death. 
Helen's defense barrister, Luce himself a spiritualist, saw Helen's trial as an opportunity to promote spiritualism by holding a seance in court and letting the jurors and everyone else believe with their own eyes. However, this was initially refused by the judge. There were five witnesses at the trial, two of which were policemen involved in her arrest, who made out Helen was weak and unconvincing, Yet the defence provided 49 witnesses, including a fellow judge, reverend, doctor, wing commander and a theatre critic. These witnesses all claimed to have seen spirits of young children through to the elderly and even animals. Many had had secrets and information divulged to them that no one could even know. Spirits had even been said to talk in foreign accents that Helen just didn't speak. Many had even seen Helen in her cabinet asleep as the spirits had been present. There was no end of volunteer witnesses willing to come forward on her behalf. Helen's lawyer eventually wore down the judge to agree to a seance in the court, providing the defence provided no more witnesses. Her defence were relentless, but sadly the jury rejected the offer of a seance. Helen's trial for apparently conjuring up evil and malicious spirits and fraudulent witchcraft became a media sensation. Newspapers would print cartoons of broomstick-riding witches. Helen Duncan was not on trial accused of being a witch. However, the legislation was designed to eradicate the belief in witches. It provided instead for punishing people purporting to have the powers of witches. Winston Churchill chimed in at this time, and this is where the show gets distinctly even more British, writing to the Home Secretary of the time, Herbert Morrison, describing the notion as obsolete tomfoolery. Unsurprisingly, Helen was found guilty. The Crown decided to throw the book at Helen and her co-accused, sending her to be tried at the Old Bailey for contravening Section 4 of the Witchcraft Act of 1735, under which carried a heavier penalty of a prison sentence. Helen, the last person in Britain to be jailed under this act, however, she wasn't the last to be convicted. This was actually Jane Rebecca York from Forestgate in East Ham, East London, in 1944. However, Jane actually escaped imprisonment. That sounds ridiculous. This was still used as a law in a time like my grandparents were in their younger years. In 1951, it was repealed and in 1951 replaced with the Fraudulent Mediums Act, which made express provision for the punishment of persons who fraudulently purport to act as spiritualistic mediums or to exercise powers of telepathy clairvoyance or other similar powers, which I understand is a law that is still in play here in the UK today. The fact that they never proved how she knew knew this information and that it was so accurate was never ever reached. So along with three others, Helen was accused of pretending to exercise or use human conjuration that through the agency of Helen Duncan, spirits of deceased persons should appear to be present. Duncan was also charged under the Larceny Act for offences of taking money by falsely pretending that she was in a position to bring about the appearances of the spirits of deceased persons. 
She was sentenced to nine months in Holloway Prison in London after being found guilty under the Witchcraft Act. Upon sentencing, Helen was completely horrified by the verdict and moaned, groaned and sobbed, I have done nothing, is there a God? Then crashed to the floor in a faint. Helen at this time was a sick woman with diabetes. Holloway was grim and the food poor and Helen wasn't even sure she could survive the sentence. While she was imprisoned, a doodlebug hit the prison and set light to it. Helen's cell was filled with smoke and she was let out just in time. Her sentence was reduced to six months and on September 22nd, 1944, she was released. As she took a cab to the railway station to get a train back to Edinburgh, she went past the old Bailey and saw it had been hit by a bomb which had blown the scales of justice off from the iconic statue on the roof. I find that like so strange that happened on the day that she went, such a sign. So I have, you know, like my nan, Margaret, who recently moved up the road from me. She actually worked at the Old Bailey back in the day. I need to have a chat with her and see if she remembers this whole, she would have been like nine, so she wouldn't remember the case. But if it was like talked about at the Old Bailey when she worked there. So despite claims Helen made that she would stop conducting seances upon her release, she did return to doing them again, especially as there was such a demand due to the loss with both the Second and First World War. So in 1951, the Witchcraft Act was repealed, partly due to the pressure from Winston Churchill. So we talked about the witchcraft being repealed, and this was partly due to the pressure from Winston Churchill. In its place, of course, came the Fraudulent Mediums Act, and in 1954, spiritualism was officially recognised as a proper religion by an Act of Parliament. True spiritualists were said to welcome this law as it meant the frauds would be scuppered. Despite this, in 1956, one of Helen's seances were raided by police. No evidence of fraud was found and the police committed one of the worst sins apparently of physical phenomena by touching a medium whilst in a trance state and shining a light on her which is said to return the ectoplasm back to the medium's body far too quickly and can cause immense, sometimes fatal damage. A doctor was summoned to tend to Helen following this and discovered she had two second-degree burns the size of tea saucers on her stomach and breast. She was rushed to hospital in severe pain and shock. The burns never healed and five weeks later, Helen died, passing away in December 1956. Some reports claim that following her death, her husband admitted to seeing his wife swallow items before her seances, whilst her personal maid maintained that she had purchased multiple lengths of cheesecloth for her mistress. To this day, many argue about Helen Duncan, especially spiritualists and mediums, to whom she is seen as a martyr. Many want her pardoned along with her ancestors. In essence, it's felt she was handled very badly by the British state. She is yet to be pardoned by the Home Office. And there is apparently only one such pardon that has ever been issued throughout the course of history up till now. So I started off researching this episode, just knowing I had to like delve into Helen's history, especially following time with some amazing mediums this weekend who like were very much like they 
they know what they do, like they know their craft. They were, oh wow, like things that I saw, like I just, I'm quite, I'm quite skeptic as well. Like I'm not skeptic, obviously, but I definitely believe in spirit because of the, like the work I've done in the past and you know work that I did at the circle. But I still always like push it to like test and see if I believe it's really happening. So yeah, like my um, personal like take on Helen is I felt quite conflicted about Helen initially. Like I found some scathing accounts on her, but the website created by her granddaughter seemed to hold some real serious facts to consider. It left me thinking in essence that maybe this was a real witch hunt in regards to her. Like she did know too much so they did want her out of the way. I can't comment much on the ectoplasm. I don't feel it would be fair for me to. There's also a lot of accounts of people that, you know, believe that they saw what they saw. The photographs that I have seen obviously made me put a lot of that into question. But then I also know that, you know, many within authority really needed to disprove her abilities. I think the evidence in her favour, combined with how much she knew, how she had no way of knowing it, spoke to me. The reason I have faith in Helen's skills are predominantly, you know, again, through my own experience of seeing my own medium for the last decade, the work that I saw at the weekend, the circle that I used to attend. When it comes to me seeing my own medium, she literally quotes back to me word for word, secret conversations that me and like one other person would only ever have been privy to. I have literally had conversations through her with my granddad. I am entirely open to skeptics. I guess, you know, again, like when it comes to Helen Duncan, I think that she was absolutely psychic. She was, you know, very good at connecting with spirit in some truly amazing ways. I do kind of wonder about the ectoplasm side coming out of like the Victorian times and so on. There was a lot of showmanship when it came to seances. So I do kind of wonder if she went a little bit all out with giving a show. There were elements even in her like granddaughter's account that showed that she was quite a like feisty, dramatic, like Scotswoman. I love it. But yeah, so I do wonder, you know, did she kind of maybe ramp up the seances a bit by doing this? And when you look at the photographs that you can see online that I mentioned on the episode, that was the thing that got me. So I'm determined, not just with Samhain around the corner, but also for this dark season to keep coming at you with some episodes along the necromancy lines and some more darker topics. Um, So it might even be in the show notes for this episode, actually. Uh, I'm literally waiting with bated breath at the moment to see if I can release a pre-order link. Oh, I'm going to get really emotional now. Um, a little link that I'm going to put in the show notes, which means that you, if you want to buy my book, you can purchase my first ever book, The White Witch's Book of Healing. So the book is finished, like everything's been done. It's sent off to print. I'm waiting to get a copy in my grubby little hands. It's um, going to be a hardback book. It is in my mind, like Leah, the amazing designer I work with, she made it like Morticia Adams 
on steroids inside. <laughs> it's like intensely gothic. I might spontaneously combust when I get the book in my grubby little hands. And I would love to share with you like a little recording of when it comes in the post. So I won't open it until I can record a little, you know, clip of me opening it. I'd love to share this with you. Like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like you are oh, the reason I got to, oh, why do I cry so much? Oh, my goodness. I feel like, you know, the reason I got to do this book was as a result of the podcast. And I feel like you've been on this, like, mad journey with me. So this 19th of October at 8 p.m. GMT, Greenwich Meridian time, we have a coven chat over on the White Witch Coven Patreon to talk all about Samhain plans, exchange ideas, themes of this hunter's moon. Also, to finish up by exchanging our personal ghost stories around the Discord campfire, so to speak, there's a link in the show notes. So it's six pounds a month. You'll get grimoire pages for series two of the podcast extra witchy content, an exclusive Patreon podcast episode once a month. Currently, we have one up on shadow magic, all about dark moon magic, how to work with its energy. There's also one on there called Hallowed, which is all about like stripping back your practice, creating like a sacred day that you work on your practice or even an hour or however much time that you have once a week. And it's like all about creating your own practice sacred and hallowed to you. So yes, we also have a common chat once a month. There's an amazing community in there. It's truly wholesome and gorgeous. I'm of course biased, but I love the witches that are on there. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. My email will also be in the show notes. Other than that, Lots of which he love. I will catch up with you all soon. Bye.